So, um, as a couple people uh, said, it looked to them like the group was a little bigger tonight. And I'm wondering how many people are here because of a New Year's resolution? (laughs) Could I just get to see how many people? Come on. Uh, Give me a break. There, one. Thank you. (laughs) Well, this talk is for you then. (laughs) Everybody else can go. Actually, we've been, this is the 15th year this group has been meeting. And the first meeting after New Year, <laughs> there's a lot of people. And, and I think it's great that people, even if you didn't make a formal New Year's resolution, there's something about the New Year that, uh, where we take stock or take account or contemplate or consider what are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? What happened in this last year? And what do we want to happen in the new year? And that kind of contemplation is considered very skillful in Buddhist practice. And the Buddha, in addition to being a great practitioner of mindfulness, was a great practitioner of contemplation. He contemplated things. He thought about things in a contemplative way Um, And especially he thought about, well, what did he want? What did he want? What was important to him? And then what did he need to do to get what he wanted? And so when he was practicing, you know, he was an ascetic for um, many years as he was practicing in the forests and uh, the different areas of India, Nepal. Um, and then he found the middle way. He realized that asceticism wouldn't work, and he started to practice in the time before he was awakened. And one of the things he noticed as he was sitting, as he was practicing, doing his mindfulness practice, was that there were three qualities of mind that kept arising, kind of patterns of mind, sankharas, in Buddhism, or patterns, habits of mind that kept arising, which he, he, as he contemplated them, he saw that they weren't so helpful uh, in, his, in the movement towards awakening, towards freedom, towards liberation. And when he realized this, he started to respond to that. And he responded by having, he did a little like New Year's resolution Right? He said, okay, this is what's been happening, and here's what I want to happen now. And he made a resolution or a resolve or an intention to change these states of mind. And the, what he saw is he, he was sitting, he was very diligent, very devoted, the Buddha. He really he knew he wanted to awaken. That was his heart's uh, inmost request. Suzuki Roshi would ask his students, what's your heart's inmost request. What's your deepest desire? What do you really, really want? What's the most important yearning of your heart? And that contemplation is an important contemplation. The Buddha contemplated his own heart's desire. And he saw it was for freedom. It was for for liberation. And then he, as he saw that, then he made the intention 
to do whatever he needed to do to enact that so that freedom would come, so that liberation would come. And so as part of this, there were then sub-contemplations, right? The biggest contemplation was about freedom and then the intention for freedom. And then within that, he saw there were other things, there were things that blocked his freedom. And one of the things that blocked his, the movement towards freedom was the tendency, the pattern, the habit of mind to want instant gratification. To want what he wanted right now and that was it. And to not think a little more long term. Like, you know, if he was, you know, hungry just eating right then. Or if he was thirsty drinking right then. And there's nothing wrong with being hungry and eating. Nothing wrong with being thirsty and drinking. But sometimes we might wait a little bit. And what he saw was that movement always to fulfill desire wasn't helping him in the movement towards his desire for freedom. He also saw another quality of mind that wasn't so helpful, which is uh, he saw that in his mind there was a pattern or a habit of ill will. And he saw that that wasn't so helpful, that quality of mind. And so he made the intention that his mind become more uh, loving, more friendly, same term in, in Buddhism, that there be more metta or loving kindness in his mind. And he also saw the tendency of mind that was cruel or mean. Anybody ever see any of these? Anybody ever have any of this? I mean, this is the Buddha, right? And he had, this was what he saw in his mind. And then as he saw this, then the intention arose for kindness or harmlessness or compassion. To begin to, to um, learn the skillful means to, um, to set the stage to, to find the composure of mind and heart so that awakening could erupt, so that awakening could happen. And so the first contemplation for all of us for the new year, a great contemplation is what do you want? What do you truly want? What, what brings you here? Why do you come here? more than once. It's actually not a lot of new people tonight, actually. is mostly people who've been here before. What, do, what are we seeking? Is it freedom? Is it wholeness? Is it the complete openness of heart? Is it the un understanding? The understanding of what the truth is, seeking the truth. See for yourself what's the most important deepest desire you have to be free from suffering or whatever it might be and to turn towards that don't, don't negate that don't forget that but actually let that start to infuse your year this year and, and we don't know yet what that means how that will look but first to begin to contemplate what do you want what do you yearn for? What do you wish for? And then later we can consider how can we make that happen? 
What are the conditions needed so that that freedom might come or the sure heart's release may open or your understanding may deepen and become fruitful. So the first part that for the Buddha was to contemplate and then the second part was what's called with his understanding of what he sought and with his understanding of the problems or the things that um, got in the way of what he sought then we have we come to what's called the second factor on the Eightfold Noble Path and the second factor is called it's got a number of names um, it's called Right Intention and, and before I go any further right doesn't mean exactly right and wrong it means much more wise intention or um, some people translate it as perfect intention or authentic intention. You know, an intention that's really rooted in the most authentic sense of who and what we are. Authentic, wise, perfect, complete sometimes. And right, right meaning that which aligns us with the truth. That's one of the definitions of right coming into accord with the truth. So intention that brings us in, into accord, into alignment, into harmony with the truth. And of course, of course, truth and dharma are the same word. So we could say it from a, from a really Buddhist perspective, we would say the intention that brings us in alignment with the dharma, with the way things are. And so it'd be, it could be called right intention, more, a little more poetic is right aspiration. Sometimes more forceful is right resolve. These are all the same. These are all the second factor of the Eightfold Path. And to intend is, an import, is a very uh, powerful part of our capacity as human beings. That we have the capacity to intend or incline or wish for or, or aspire to. And the Buddha highlighted this. He said, this is important. Intention is important. Intention, aspiration, or resolve conditions how we act. So we want to start to be mindful or pay attention to what are our intentions. Um, because if we don't, we're going to act based on intentions that we're not aware of. In other words, and this is very, um, uh, in Buddhist psychology, intention is considered so pervasive that they're like every, every moment, every action, it's said, in Buddhist psychology, is conditioned by an intention. And it's only when the, the mind gets extremely quiet extremely quiet and centered that one can even begin to generally see the intentions one has. And on a retreat, it gets very helpful after about a week or 10 days, we'll actually do some teaching about how to be mindful of intention. And the first intention is people are sitting, right? Everybody's sitting, it's a meditation. You start to be aware of the intention to stand up at the end of the sitting. And then 
you, as you're standing up, if you're standing a while, you'll notice there's actually an intention to walk before you take a step. And the intention is, it's, they're very subtle intention, and it feels like a little uh in the body. It's just a little uh. And if you're paying attention, you realize that uh, I don't know a better way to say it exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like a little, it's like an impulse. It, it's like an impulse, and we don't even notice our impulses mostly, but it's a little very quiet impulse. And all of a sudden, if you notice it, you realize, oh, you have some choice here. You, you're standing, you feel the impulse, a little uh, to start to move. And you realize, oh, you don't have to move. You could move, or you could not move. But that the, when you're mindful of impulse, it actually gives us choice. And this is impulse in a very refined level. And then, of course, I mean, excuse me, intention on a very refined level. Um, but also in our lives, we know that there's intention. People make the intention to go to school or get a certain kind of job or get in a relationship or get out of a relationship. That there's an intention and if we're not aware of our intention, then often we're just um, in the thrall of them. They're more unconscious. Like you're walking down the street and all of a sudden you find yourself in the haagen store. <laughs> And, oh yeah, that chocolate, butter, brickle, nut thing that is called the Buddha realm. Let me have one of those. <laughs> right? And you didn't even see the intention that was happening on the street when you saw the sign like, oh, I want. I want that. And then the movement towards it. or often there's more subtle, really subtle intentions, often we don't see that we're feeling lonely as we walk down the street. And there's some intention to assuage the loneliness with the ice cream. And it's a much more subtle level of intention, that we're feeling some kind of dukkha, some kind of suffering, and that we're acting in some way to take care of our suffering. And so it becomes a very important to begin to be conscious, become conscious of our intention. And intending, and to intend also when we're conscious of it, we, when we contemplate it consciously, then we can see that to intend means to start to uh, have a course of action, or a purpose, or an objective, or a plan, um, to function in a certain way. And when we think about it in terms of the Dharma, I love the root of the word means to, um, to stretch towards. To stretch towards. And when I think about it in terms of our, our practice, our Dharma practice, to me it means to stretch towards what we love, what we care about, what's important to us, and to really give ourselves to that. Or to aspire means to direct one's hopes or ambition towards achieving something. And um, the synonyms for, for aspire means to desire or dream of or long for or to yearn for or to set one's heart on. 
it really brings the heart quality of intention very clearly because it's it's clearly it's got a mind quality but there's an important heart quality to intention and of course resolve means to decide firmly on a course of action or firm determination or steadfastness or a sense of resolution or commitment and so you can feel the more the power of intention that's why I like all three all three of them and resolution the synonyms are are to resolve or be resolute or single-minded or a kind of firmness of purpose or perseverance or persistence a sense of boldness or spiritedness and so the contemplation of what we love and then the intention to enact it the intention to live in, in such a way that we really achieve what we seek and, and from a Buddhist perspective the Buddha he saw that freedom was possible and then he, he did everything he could to align his life in such a way so that he realized that freedom I, lo- I like resolution because it's got all these other kind of neat um, synonyms like in addition to uh, spiritedness, bravery, courage, pluck, grit, spunk. It's nice. Good to have a little of that stuff, especially on the spiritual path, because you'll need it. You'll need it. It's not just. It's not just a kind of Pollyanna. Uh, open your heart, actually, to really walk the spiritual path will ask everything of you, ultimately. Will ask everything of you. And when you give it, it will give everything to you. It will give everything to you. So one of the important... one of the important um, discriminations to make is around desire because there are different kinds of desire in Buddhism. There are desires that lead to freedom and happiness, to one's long-term well-being, and desires that don't actually lead to that, that maybe in the short term bring a little bit of happiness or a little bit of satisfaction or a little bit of ease, but in the long term they, they don't really do the job. So there's, it's considered there are more primitive desires, you know, kind of just instinctual desires that we want to get what we want, when we want it, how we want it. We feel good for a few minutes, right? Or an hour, maybe a day or something. My example always was when my daughter was about 13 or 14, she, she was very into um, going to used clothing stores and buying clothes. And, you know, I like to hang out with my daughter, so I would go with her to these stores. And I would also pay for it, of course. (laughs) And she found a place in San Francisco that sold clothes by the pound. So she would get all these clothes and pile them up, weigh them up, and and it was pretty cheap. It was actually a great style as a dad. I was totally happy with that. (laughs) Um, You know, and I was... And we would go and she would buy all these clothes and we would go home and she would, she's probably a little younger, maybe 12 or something, and, and then she would start putting stuff on that she'd bought. She'd say, oh, how does this look? And I'd say, oh, that's great. And then she'd go out, she'd come back and she'd say, how does this look? And I'd say, oh, that's nice. You know, t-shirts, it's like, it's a t-shirt. But, you know, it looked great, that's great. And, 
and she was happy and we'd go take her about 20 minutes or half an hour show all her new clothes and then then she'd say can we go shopping again? <laughs> you know it was satisfying for a little while but not long term not long term and it's important for us to contemplate it doesn't mean we can't enjoy our clothes or our power books or our whatever it is that we have, you know, our yoga mats or anything, you know, the flowers that are here for a moment and then go. It's beautiful. But sometimes we think, oh, that's where our real happiness, that's where we'll find real happiness. So it's important to contemplate, is that true? Is that true? And it doesn't mean we can't enjoy the more temporary pleasures of life, but that we don't invest in them in the same way. We don't invest our well-being in them. The word for desire in its grossest form in Buddhism is called tanha. It means thirst. It's like, you know, when you're thirsty, you just want to, you know, you're in a desert, you just want to drink water. That's it. There's no, there's no, there's no thought about it. That's it. The word for, for intention is sankapa. And it really longs, it's really the calling or the intention or the aspiration, the desire for one's deepest yearning. For what calls one at the, at the, in, in one's bones, in one's heart, in one's cells. What's the most important calling? And I'm going to back up one step. Wait, wait. Oh, I'm going to go. This is what Bhikkhu Bodhi says. He says we can. Uh, no, no, I'll wait and do that later. It's a new talk. Still, still in progress. Um, I'll back up one step. So remember, right intention, the intention to wake up, is conditioned by the first factor of the Eightfold Noble Path, which is right view. And simply put, since I'm not doing a right view talk, right view is understood as seeing the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths are that there's suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, that there's freedom from suffering, and there's a path or a way or a skillful means that lead to freedom. And so when we start to see the suffering of our, our own suffering, first of all, our own dukkha, the difficulty, dis-ease, dissatisfaction, heartache, pain of being a human being, and that all human beings share, that all human beings share. Not, not, not suffering is a mistake, but suffering is part of the realm of being human. Then that will help condition our intention. So our understanding of suffering conditions our intention. And so to begin to have a deeper and deeper understanding of that, will deepen and deepen our intention. Bhikkhu Bodhi, he says, a penetrating view of the nature of existence gained through deep reflection and validated through investigation 
brings with it a restructuring of values which sets the mind towards moving towards goals commensurate with the new vision. The application of mind needed to achieve those goals is what is meant by right intention. I'll read it again. A penetrating view of the nature of existence gained through deep reflection and validated through investigation brings with it a restructuring of values which sets the mind moving towards goals commensurate with the new vision. The application of mind needed to achieve these, those goals is what is meant by right intention. So what he's saying there, as we begin to look clearly at ex- human existence, at human life, at our life and at the lives of others, both in terms of reflection, he says deep reflection and investigation. He means to contemplate and to be mindful, both. And to really look. And it's why we practice mindfulness, both as we sit here, we can see the suffering of human beings. We all sit with it at every sitting. If your body aches, that's suffering. If your mind can't relax, that's suffering. If your heart is in pain or hurting or tender, that's suffering. If you're wanting something that's not here, that's suffering. If you don't want what's here to be here, that's suffering. If you're sitting, waiting for me to ring the bell, thinking, oh, I wish you would ring the bell, that's suffering. And it's not a bad thing, and you don't have to judge yourself for it, and you're not doing it wrong. It's part of the human experience, and we want to begin to contemplate it, to be mindful of it, and to let it begin to permeate our understanding, not to become dour, not to not see the beauty of life, the goodness of life, the magic and mystery of life, but it really will help us align our values when we see the temporality of human life the fact that we only live a while, the difficulty of human life. And so with that, with this reflection and investigation, it brings a restructuring of our values, which then moves the mind towards the goals, commensurate, meaning in line with our vision, our understanding of reality. And this is what is meant the movement of mind, the intention, is right intention. And intention is extremely, extremely powerful. You see it often in sports. How powerful some one player's intention might be. They're just going to do it. And all of a sudden, they're changing the whole game. Um, you know, Michael Jordan was always a great example. He had such powerful uh, contemplative skills that he applied to basketball. You know, his, his mindfulness, his concentration, his one-pointedness, and his intention. As in the game I'm thinking of, there was one like playoff game where he had the flu. And it was, he was so sick, you could see it in him. And every time there was a pause, he was just like hangdog. And then when, when the game started, he just killed the other team. It was like, oh, how can he do that? His intention was so powerful. 
Or it's even interesting, I was watching a little of the debates last night, just to see the intention of these people who want to be president, right? They, made, they, they contemplated what they want. This is their heart's desire, their heart's inmost request. God bless them. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, and what they're willing to go through and persevere and the steadfastness and the commitment that they've made. This is the enacting of their intention. There's also a more magical part to this. Magical is not such a, it's not a very Buddhist way to speak, but you know, I can almost get away with mysterious part or um, what's the word? Mystical, how about that? But the Buddha said, he said, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time to that his or her mind and heart will bend and incline. And so, and what, I'm, what I want to point to here is just our inner intentions, our inner aspirations, even on a small level. Like, uh, for example, on a retreat, when I'm on a retreat every day I wake up and there's a kind of natural intention or aspiration that I have. And I don't know what it is. Sometimes I come to the retreat with it. But sometimes it just arises spontaneously. So I'll wake up and I'll think, oh, may I, may I realize the truth of uh, selflessness today? That's my aspiration, my intention for the day. And then I don't think about it. I don't try to contemplate it in a thinking my way to selflessness or to emptiness or to nature, whatever my aspiration to understand might be. But I just do my practice. But that just thinking that thought begins to incline the mind and heart in that direction and that's a very powerful move. There's something about our inclining, our intending that is very powerful. And I've seen it work over and over again. And so you can do that as a practice. Get up every day and see well, what, do you, what do you intend for this day? May I be present in each moment. It doesn't mean you'll be present in each moment. But that's your intention. You're setting the direction of your heart. You know, may I really wake up at work today. And you'll be asleep a thousand times at work, but you're setting the direction for something to happen. And don't underestimate that. Or may, you know, when you have a difficult conversation to have, may I be as wise as possible. May I be as wise as possible in this conversation. To just incline the heart, intend the mind. The one I do most often, to be honest, is before I give a Dharma talk, I always make an intention. And the intention, sometimes there's some variation, but it's something to, may, may the words be well spoken and may they be helpful. And then, you know, I can, anything can happen. They can be really bad sometimes. <laughs> but, but that's really my heart's intention, to really align with that before I speak. So there are three kinds of intention. Let me just read you the Buddha talking about right intention. 
He says, what is right intention? It is the intention of renunciation, the intention of non-ill will, the intention of non-cruelty. This is called right intention. So the intention of renunciation is the intention of release or letting go or not holding on, not grasping, not clinging. And the intention of goodwill is the intention, uh, the intention of non-ill will is the intention of goodwill, of friendliness, of uh, metta or loving kindness. And the intention of non-cruelty is the intention of harmlessness or the uh, intention of compassion. And the first is considered a wisdom resolve, right? The intention of renunciation, to let go, to release, to not cling, that really has to do with wisdom on the Buddhist path. And the, the two others are really heart uh, aspirations. They're, they're um, the enacting, they're being able to enact the wisdom of letting go through the friendliness and loving kindness and compassion of the heart. So these, the Buddha saw that friendliness and compassion and letting go were excellent conditions for freedom. That these were the conditions of the heart and mind that lead to the arising or the erupting or the realization of the truth, of the Dharma, of freedom or of liberation. And there, it's helpful when we do a contemplation like this to keep contemplating what does it mean to you? What do these mean to you? Or how might it look to you? And, not, and none of them are a should. None of them are uh, some... They're not to be used as judgments about where you might be, but as ways to begin to discern or evaluate where are you, what do you want, and what would be helpful to get there. Is that clear? What do you, where are you? What do you want? And what would be helpful? And not as judgments about where you're at. If the Buddha thought judgments were helpful for awakening, he would have put them in this list. <laughs> if he thought self-denigration and being hard on yourself or judging yourself, he would use it. He was very practical. But he saw that that actually didn't help. And so we don't want to go there. What we want to do is cultivate different qualities of heart and mind that allow what you seek to arise. And so renunciation can be understood as the intention to choose wisely, to choose based on seeing clearly and recognizing what brings happiness and what doesn't. And to also see the truth of impermanence. To just see that everything passes, everything changes, and that in reality there's nothing we can hold on to. And so renunciation is not so much, oh, we have to, we have to get rid of something, but it's much more seeing the truth of the way things are and then beginning to align with that so that we can have things, you know, I love my thermos. I mean, I could think, oh, I'm attached, I need to renounce my thermos. 
and I'm a little attached to it, to be honest. But, <laughs> but, but I'm not really. You know, if I really, if I lose the thermos, I know I'll be okay. You know, I know where to get another thermos. <laughs> but, but really, you know. Or, or I love the bell, right? But if the bell's not here one day, it'll be okay. Or if my car doesn't work, you know, it's just a car. That things are temporary. All things are temporary. And then to become to, into alignment with that may, maybe means, perhaps it means, we can relax with the temporality. We can relax with not having to own ultimately anything. Right? I don't really own the thermos. I, I'm, I'm the steward of the thermos as long as it's alive. Right? I'll take good care of it. I wash it. I put hot stuff in it. You know, I use it so it's well used. But someday something will happen. It'll break or it'll get lost and, and then it'll be gone. As, as Ajahn Chah likes saying, it's both a Zen story and Ajahn Chah story, he would pick up a glass, you know, and he would say, this cup, if you, if you see clearly, you know this cup is already broken. He would have a glass or ceramic mug. He would say, you would see this is already broken. And when you see that, it means you can enjoy it, but you don't have to hold on to it. This is one of the deepest flavors of renunciation. Another important way to consider, reflect on renunciation is about what do we value, what do we value right? So if we, one of the great values of contemplative life is here, is now. Anybody notice that, right? The now is very important in contemplative practice, mindfulness practice. You can't be mindful of what happened last year. You can be mindful of thinking about what happened last year and that thinking is happening in the present moment. You can only be mindful of what's happening now. You can be mindful of what you plan to happen two years from now, but that thinking, that planning is happening now. You can be mindful of being pissed at somebody who cut you off on the way over here but that being cut off that, that's not happening now that anger is happening now that thinking about what happened then is happening now the now is a very important value for us and if you want to walk the Buddhist path it means learning how to step right here into the present moment and so renunciation from that perspective means renouncing the past and renouncing the future. Renouncing our belief that the past exists other than some kind of memory and pattern within us. That can be. But as an actuality, whatever happened, actually everything that's happened up until this moment in your life is totally gone. It's gone. Remember 2007? <laughs> Let alone, you know, some of you might remember, you know, 1940 here. Very few, but there's a few. All gone. 
And it was so real. Didn't it seem real then? <laughs> Doesn't it seem real now? And it is real now, for a moment. But it's very insubstantial also, reality. Empty is the, the word that the, the Buddhists use. It's empty, meaning empty of solidity, empty of concreteness, empty of any permanent existence. It's here for a moment now, and then it's gone. Whether it's our breath, our bodies, the Dharma talk, the meditation, the traffic, the storm, the life, it's here for a moment and then it's gone. One last, so, so renouncing the past, renouncing the future, renouncing in our memories, meaning you don't have to forget your memories, but to simply believe that we are our memories may be a misunderstanding. To renounce our fantasies, to renounce our um, projections of other people and even of ourselves, to see what happens as we learn to root, ground, center, unify in the present moment. And then what is reality? How, is it, how does the perception of reality change when we're not in the past and not in the future, not in our ideas and not in our beliefs, but simply present, simply present, fully present? Reality begins to see itself at that moment. The reality that we are begins to realize itself in that presence. And of course, in that way, if we, if we are to align with our heart's deepest desire, our inmost desire, it means, as Pema Chodron puts it, she says, renunciation does not have to be regarded as negative. I was taught that it had to do with letting go of holding back. Letting go of holding back. What one is renouncing is closing down and shutting off from life. You could say that renunciation is the same thing as opening to the teachings of the present moment. Renunciation is realizing that our nostalgia for wanting to stay in a protected, limited, petty world is insane. This is, she's very direct, Pema. Once you begin to get the feeling of how big the world is and how vast our potential is, how fast our potential for experiencing life is, then you really begin to understand renunciation. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi, and he's talking about renouncing maybe more um, instinctual desires for one's deepest desire. He says, we can contemplate directly the benefits flowing from renunciation. To move from desire to renunciation is not, as might be imagined, a move from happiness to grief or abundance to destitution. It is to pass from gross, entangling pleasures to an exalted happiness and peace, from a condition of servitude to our desire, from, uh, from a condition of servitude to our desires, to one of self-mastery. 
one of self-mastery, freedom. So the intention for uh, renunciation, the uh, intention of non-ill will, I'm going to be quick here because we're running out of time, um, <clears throat> which is the intention of goodwill. Anybody notice how nice it feels when we have a sense of goodwill as opposed to when we have a feeling of ill will? And it doesn't mean we have to judge ourselves. Again, I want to be very clear. You don't have to judge yourself or condemn yourself if you have a feeling of ill will. It, it happens. We all have it. Humans have that. But to begin to see it, to contemplate it, and to really see the difference when there's a feeling of goodwill and to begin to incline the heart and mind in that direction through mindfulness, through inquiry, through investigation, through contemplation, through actions. And the, the heart is boundless. Our hearts are boundless, totally boundless, totally limitless. Remember when Pema said about our potential and the potential of life, we have no idea how limitless, how boundless our hearts are for good will, for kindness and care, for generosity, for gratitude, for fearlessness, for courage. My own coming to Buddhist practice came when I was in, I was in Israel about almost more than 25 years ago. Wow, long time ago now. And I was doing some, some religious service where you atone for the hardening of the heart. And, and one of these, and it just struck me that my heart had hardened since I was, you know, a teenager. And I was, struck, I was actually shocked by it. I realized I'd gotten a really hard, kind of streetwise heart. And I realized oh, I didn't want that. And I didn't know what to do. It was disturbing, and I didn't know what to do. And I was actually, the next day, I was hanging out at the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall in Judaism, very powerful place, you know, sacred place on the earth. Of course, totally sacred Jewish, Christian, and Islamic place all right together. Problem that way, but <laughs> anyhow. So I was at the wall, and I, you know, I didn't even know how to pray or anything. I was just kind of hanging out, putting my hands on the wall, and you know, hanging out. And all of a sudden, I got this understanding. I needed to learn how to meditate if I wanted to deal with the hardening of my heart. Now, where did that come from? I have no idea. No idea. Except that I was, my contemplation, seeing, understanding my heart had hardened without judgment, but with definitely concern, had begun to open up a line of inquiry, a line of investigation that brought some understanding of what needed to happen. And I came, when I came back to America, I sought my first meditation teacher and started meditating. And it works. It's really good medicine for the heart. Let's see. And then the third, the third intention of non-cruelty or harmlessness is really beginning to see deeply, to look deeply at those feelings of disconnection 
and connection. Because when we're connected, when we're, we feel our sense of belonging, there's not a sense of, of, uh, of, Ill, of uh, cruelty. That compassion arises naturally when we see how connected we are, how completely uh, um, of one fabric we are as human beings, crossing lines of race or color or or um, nationality or culture or political persuasion or what or, or gender or sexual preference or height or hair color or eye color or you know what team you like um, the football or it doesn't matter those those divisions are um, relative but that there is a deeper view, a deeper understanding to perceive reality from. And when we see how inter- even interconnected is almost too mechanical a term, the, the, um, ex- the, the spirit of what's here in each person is no different in essence at all. And so compassion arises by entering into the subjectivity of others, about seeing others as oneself, of seeing our sameness. Longfellow said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each person's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Or George Washington Carver, he said, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday you will have been all of these. So right intention, right intention, right aspiration, right resolve, it's actually also called right thought sometime, right right thinking, right thought. When we begin to see, or sometimes right motivation, when we begin to see our intention and begin to align it with our deepest desire, good things happen, good things happen. And it'll be good not only for you, but for the whole world. For the whole world. Your awakening, your realization, in whatever way, shape, or form it comes, will be good for the whole world. I'll end with uh, the Dalai Lama. He said, We must have a pure, honest, and warm-hearted motivation, intention. And on top of that, determination, optimism, hope, and the ability not to be discouraged. The whole of humanity depends on this motivation. Let's sit together for a minute, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.